This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Pizzled. I mean, Paul. <laughs> Hi, I'm Marissa. Hello, I'm Evan. And we're going to talk about Autofac, a uh, first short, uh, short novelette, uh, I guess an hour long or so. First published in Galaxy in uh, November 1955. Um, it was also adapted into an episode of PKD's Electric Dreams, um, which I think we should get out of the way because it's usually in the way. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. I thought it wasn't terrible. I was surprised that it wasn't as terrible as I I was, I guess, the low standards. What did you guys all think? Was it terrible? I agree with oh. you. I think if we're going with low standards, it's one of the of the, the group. Yeah. I mean, it's got serious problems, but not... It's, not uh, yeah, there were a few parts that were... Like, there's always... All these episodes have some really horrible moments, and this one has those too, but I think overall I... I liked it. I found it yeah. the most, one of the maybe the most redeemable. There mm-hmm. are redeeming aspects to it, but there are also some very unredeeming aspects to it. I yeah. uh, I don't know why we have to have cunnilingus scenes in the shower for <laughs> no reason. Oh, yeah. Is it is it only it up. is it only to you know make us care about these characters we don't care about because it didn't work? I think it was part of the whole thing of like the f- female main character just showing her being you know like the guy was like the the naked one for the change while she was fully clothed and he right. was like you they, know they kneeling down and yeah. she was in charge of the sex situation yeah, yeah. I, I think mean, it was a part of that i guess but what what, what does that have to do with the story is what like like that uh, it abs there's absolutely an agenda that it, that it, when we look back in 50 years time and look at all the things that have come out in the like I don't know last five years or so um, probably last three years more like it we're gonna see except for stuff like on Game of Thrones where they don't actually care about that shit but it like for stuff like this I think we're gonna see like whoa they really <laughs> laid this shit on heavy because it, mm-hmm. it absolutely has nothing to do with like like the, the gender of the of that hacker character doesn't matter to the story yeah right um and then just thinking about uh, having sex scenes in there actually i think hurt the story in a way because um for the twist ending i guess it's got a double twist ending or something like that Mm -hmm. uh that is you know aberrant from the uh the story and i think is not as good as yeah it goes it goes 90 degrees from the story and turns it into something completely different right so i I, do you know what it feels like yeah it it feels like almost breaking the fourth wall because it's so directed at at the tv audience watching at that time and not a part of the story so it totally feels like hey you guys like i know you need the sex scene so here it is (laughs) 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 Insert obligatory sex scene here. Totally, yeah, yeah. You know, That's what it feels like. Black Mirror doesn't add, will add sex scenes, but only if it's for part of the story, right? Mm-hmm. Like the whole thing mm-hmm. will be a sex scene if it needs to be, but they won't like, like what's that? The one that's kind of similar to this metalhead, I think it's called. Um, what's just got oh, a yeah. drone chasing after people. It's it's it. 
that could be set in the same universe as um, this the Autofac, right? I mean, yeah, it, it essentially is Autofac um, mm-hmm. in the in the uh, book version rather than the TV version. And the TV version or the TV TV adapt the Philip K. Dick Electric Dreams adaptation could be a, set in a sequel world to Autofac, right? But right. by adding that sex stuff in. I'm at the end, like her, she's coming back to her community and she sees her uh, boyfriend who, by the way, is a librarian. Um, although she's the one with all the books, he's the one with, <laughs> he's the librarian, we're told. And then I was like, they, well, they're robots, they can't have children. Um, aren't they going to notice at some point or is she just going to keep rebooting them or do, are they on a loop? And then Although, the whole meaning drops away. No, maybe like, I know that existence mm. drops away, and 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 purpose drops away. So the twist works as long as you don't think at all afterwards. Oh, for example, this yeah. is to add to that. She she basically doomed every other robot on the planet to oh, yeah. extinction. Oh, she they're did too. They're hooked up to the autofact. They depend on the autofact, so they won't make it. It's too totally weak. like the. It's like. Yeah, it's like every one of these episodes, I'm, I'm sure we've had the same conversation with them, where as soon as you start thinking about it, it all breaks down and gets weird. <laughs> yeah, I, I, mean, I mean, it's ostensibly on the on the surface as well as you're watching. Oh, it's a happy ending. She's she stopped the artifact. She's she disconnected the machine. The she's going, she's running through the field. And then you think like, oh, <laughs> wait, this is just as bad as the actual story, which we will get to. It's just, just as a downer ending as soon as you think about it for more than five seconds. I think seconds. it's way like, worse than than the ending in the book. In the book, we've got yeah. we've got uh, you know humanity's replacement going to the stars and maybe fucking around on the Earth still some more, a lot more, I guess. But you can have that uh, primitive existence that the people who are already cut off from the autofac, um or yeah, who who were already cut off from the autofac, you know, with their horses and their uh, sad <laughs> sad chickens, <laughs> like like yeah, the description the of their people. of their uh, yeah, but, community is pretty primitive and and sad, but they're they're just and, and human animals again, it, right? Yeah, it's degrading. I mean, I I mean, I I had read the story a long while ago. I had not remembered. I didn't I didn't think I had, but as soon as the beats start happening, like oh yeah, I've okay, I've read this before. And when you get to the ending and you realize that human civilization that's been being propped up, however, weirdly by the artifact is now just going to go sliding right into the toilet. It's it's that's that's a downer dooner doomed ending like civil hum, humanity is going to go back to pre barbarism. That's not happening. Yeah, but it's still going to exist. And and mm-hmm. and it, it, they did have a nuclear war. Right. So they did. They they did. But. It, it, it's not at all certain, yeah. Like what? What the? Well, there still is this, but the actual ultimate fate of humanity is not exactly known. I mean, without without, I mean, how how well are humans going to survive when they don't have the, any of the trappings of modern civilization? Is are we just going to be doomed hunter gatherer tribes going across a post apocalyptic landscape looking for stuff and raising chickens and using Sounds good spears? To me. Sounds good to me. The, the the alternative presented in the TV show is we're all going to live in a community on buses like hippies. Um, uh, we have a big pile of books that we don't need to read because we're fucking robots and we could 
We could store that data electronically. <laughs> but we but we don't know we don't know we're robots, which is which is I guess, th- but aren't we gonna notice after a while that nobody's getting old or their parts are wearing wearing out or the doctor like like there's a guy with a limp, right? When he goes to the doctor and they do an x ray or they feel around in there or they do some surgery, they're gonna notice. <laughs> they tried to deal with that in the show though. There was this like I guess or something. Yeah, she she cuts block. her own head open. Oh yeah, they had the filters, all the yeah, the mental blocks. That's right, right. even. But yep. have, you, have you guys dealt with that story, Rust? Have you ever read that one? Mm-hmm. I think that's it's by Dick. No, it's it's back to the 30s or 40s. No, um, it was in no. one of those. I read in one of these Asimov collections of those science fiction from the 30s and 40s. Uh, um, and in that story, it's about like robots after humanity passed away, but they're all like actually rusting up and they're just trying to maintain themselves. Cool. A lot of the people can't move. A lot of the robots can't move anymore and they're struggling to like take, you know, replacement parts and stuff, but it's a really bleak view of the future. Who wrote this story? I don't know. I forgot the name. Oh man. I, I love this because even, even just hearing Jesse talk about like what's going to happen next in this community when they start realizing things aren't how they should be like i want to watch that episode that sounds like a way more interesting episode <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the sequel they they, <laughs> the they they set up they set up a whole premise and then and then said that doesn't matter we got the reunification uh, and notice she left behind the two guys whose head were cut off but still operating on the table you know oh, they don't they don't get ever uh, she she's kind of a monster actually uh, if if you follow my moral imperative she uses people as a, as a means to an end um, all over the place. Um, I, I can understand having to, you know, use the robot as a means to an end, right? Lying to the robot, pretending that she doesn't know something, and then using herself as the um, yeah. the logic bomb she called herself, right? Logic bomb, <laughs> which is cute. So, 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 but yeah, th- other than that, she she's a monster. She's lying to everybody. Yeah, even like in a consequentialist ethic little framework, she's horrible because. We don't know, like, the global reach of the artifact. Alice makes the point, like, we have a small footprint. Maybe it's just local. I don't know. You know, in, in the in the story, these are all over the world, right? Mm-hmm. There are many of these. Right. So it seems to be a more global. But by ending that artifact, you know, she's basically taking the needs of that community over the needs of all these other Mm. robot communities well, well, that also well, well, presumably think they're human and are, but rely on the autofact. And they're all well, duplicates of, of the people who are already in her community as well, right? So she's she's mm-hmm. saying my my community, um, a group of identical people matter matter and everybody else doesn't. Well, what we we don't do know there is some reach to this artifact because as I mentioned that there's hundreds of these yeah duplicate communities. I mean I mean granted the artifact as she seen a TV show is a pretty massive operation and maybe it alone is supplying all these communities and maybe it's maybe it's not although if if she just knocked off one artifact it just sounds like she just shut down one one node in which case in which case i think there is only one artifact in 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 the tv version and and and, and so the only people the only quote unquote people left are these are these created consumers in in the area around the artifact, and the rest of the world is dead? Yeah, because because they say they say essentially humanity is extinct, so she's doomed. She's doomed the last, um, essentially throw it the la- the last beings on the planet. She's doomed by her action. 
It's, it's yeah, very... So there's, like, there's people all over the world right now in her world, like, waiting for their Amazon deliveries, and they're just never going to come. <laughs> yeah, I, I noticed a lot off. of people, com- when they're reviewing the, the uh, show, they're watching it on Amazon Prime, and then they think this is this is a story about Amazon. And I Isn't think, that weird? Like, yeah. Maybe. Yeah. I think I think that that works a lot more when you look at it through the TV show, right? Where you've got these, uh, what, we're always being told that drones are going to be delivering, right? Mm-hmm. And once that happens, I mean, it is kind of an interesting way to think about what's what's happening in in the story and in, in our lives when you can't communicate with the postman because it, you know, you can't say, can you leave it under the eve next time because it's getting wet right um that there there we i think dick is dealing with something real like i've seen those sort of i've filled them out myself those kind of punch cards where you you put a check mark beside the thing that's you know soiled was the one that you know we get something delivered and it's it's here and it's the right item but it's wrong something wrong with it it's not pizzled exactly but there's something wrong with it <laughs> and then if it's something that's you know it's it's missing a part right um you have to write a note at the bottom that this is a real thing it's dealing with bureaucracy but the very first thing i was thinking about when i first read the story um for this week is um this is kind of a reverse um cargo cult story where instead of wishing mm-hmm. for the deliveries, the automated deliveries, right, the mysterious auto, uh, automated deliveries, you've got people trying to stop the automated deliveries. And perhaps, I mean, it's very interesting. Why why do they want to stop it in the in the uh, story versus the TV show? They they have some excuse that the heavy metals are damaging their greenscape or something, but they're fucking robots. So the food that they're, they're eating, they're, they're, they're basically, like, they're basically whatever. polluting everything. Yeah. But, but and, they're and, robots. And, and, so and I, how can they, well, they don't know their robots. I know. They don't so know they're robots. I know. I, but but I, found, I found that an interesting change because in the story, it's more like rusting the means of production away from, from uh, the artifact and back to humanity, at least so they think it doesn't work out that way. But the idea of we want to be in charge of our own destiny, what we make, what we do, we don't want the artifact just to take it all and and use it all, which which is an interesting idea of itself. But in a TV show, that's respond as oh no, the artifact is polluting and ruining the planet, which yeah. is which is a which is a more global ecological story, and maybe in our times one that resonates a little better you can you can sympathize more with wanting to stop the artifact if it's like oh it's it's going to ruin the planet versus oh it's just giving you stuff you don't want yeah because in that, which case that feels i would a say little... it makes it makes a hell of a lot more sense to to not tackle amazon per se but capitalism in general right so capitalism is the the unstoppable beast not not a, a, an actual robot Right. There's not it's not Amazon. Amazon is one aspect. Totally. Yeah. I was reading like that, too, where Amazon is really the auto facts, like actual devices. But the system that's broken is humanity. Right. Which is the same right. Thing. And and yeah. then you can think, the institution of, in the story. think of like, um, you know, you guys all know about the cargo cults in, <laughs> I guess. New Guinea. Yeah. 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 So in the Pacific, the they're fighting against Japan and they. 
they the Marines land, and then these guys called Seabees, who are kind of quasi-military engineers, come and start clearing clearing away a, a space on the island to make landing strips for airplane refueling stations, so they can keep bombing and Japan and you know control the Pacific. Well, the natives who are vastly unfamiliar with the 20th century technologies, um, they they see these giant birds coming down from the sky, and we've got a bird in this story as well, that uh, deliver seemingly at random um, cargo, wonderful goodness. And I, I went a deep dive onto cargo cults a few years ago, and uh, there's a... Um, there's a religion uh, that was at the time, at least a few years ago, still going. I mean, not particularly strong is my guess, but these are these are fringe people, anyways. You know, they're not well represented in uh, the uh, family of man. They don't get their own stamp. You know, <laughs> um, these people who you know would send. Uh, locals to get educated in the United States, right, and visit the actual place where all this cargo comes from, and still does. I mean, Hawaii seems like a uh, pretty sophisticated place, and they're part of the United States, but if you go to a very remote atoll where there are still people living, um, you don't really grasp the full industrial might of of China or Japan or the United States or, 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 or even, you know, a, a medium sized country, you can't, you can't grasp it. And so they have this, you know, if you raise the American flag, <laughs> if you build a, uh, a ship or not a ship, a, um, an aircraft shaped object out of wicker, um, they have a belief that this has spiritual value and will bring prosperity to the land. And this is fucking insane, but mm-hmm. you can see why they, you know, they had, you know, 70 years ago, they had something that, that actually was a miracle, right? All this cargo coming from out of the sky, it's manna from heaven, right? And it, if the forms are followed, you get, you get the, the right deliveries. And so then I was thinking, this is, why are they rejecting this in this story? And then I was thinking about Costa Rica, uh, not Costa Rica, uh, Puerto Rico. You know, Puerto Rico's got this this big problem where they're connected to the United States, but they they don't actually have the means of production. They don't have control over their own economy. They have uh, all sorts of economic problems caused by um, being a colony. Being a colony, basically, yeah. And they can't get out of them. And the only solution is to not be there. If you want to, you know, have a, a full and functioning life, you, you basically leave. And that's what a lot of people do. And that's sort of what I think is happening in the story. That's mm-hmm. interesting. It, so, and that's so why they lose too, right? Because they, you can't beat, you can't beat capitalism by, by uh, sinking a ship that comes to your harbor. And you can't beat capital. You can't absolutely cannot beat capitalism by talking to your your non-voting representative because they have no power. It's really a, it is control of the means of production. And it's mentioned in the story. I think it's mentioned in the the TV show. It is a really interesting uh, story. Philip K. Dick is a super smart guy coming up with yeah. this idea. 
That's I've woke. Kind of reminded me. That's why I was thinking like the auto effects or Amazon. Sorry. Um, because uh, that's kind of what humans are doing now. Like they keep on saying in the story that we're using up all the resources on Earth and one by one, mm. you know, things are getting scarcer. But you can't blow up Amazon headquarters to stop that happening. You know, like it's just going to, it's humanity. I, I hear it's a pretty top-down organization. I'm not endorsing assassination, but I think the company <laughs> would fall apart if um, if its head robot was um, was not in charge. Not I mean, it, it would at least fall apart eventually, and it will fall apart eventually. Every all profits are temporary, um, but well, what about capitalism this, this, uh, will not fall apart because because exactly. somebody killed Jeff Bezos. Well, so then this this story does seem to then cast doubt on any efficacy of any kind of consumer politics. I mean, there's this yes. strain throughout American history of, I mean, all the way back to the American Revolution, right? The boycotts against the British Empire. Yes. But then you had the, things the like Boston Craft Party, right? the bi-union uh-huh. movement, you know, trying to have political action through consumption. And, and it seems pretty banal in, in most cases. I mean, there, I guess people, I guess the one example people give of something working was like the South Africa, right? The boycotts of South Africa. Yeah, that's that's only. I haven't one I really studied of, it yeah. though to know. You know, I would guess more of more grassroots movements in South Africa that brought down apartheid than, you know, white people in America not buying their goods. But well, I I think also really that there are individuals there who say this is unacceptable. You know, we the system we're under is not tenable, and then they move towards towards um, uh, a reconciliation. Right. So it's not. Yeah, it's not outside protest that directly causes uh, the destruction. And it's interesting because if you think about what happens in the story, I don't think that necessarily the human humans acting in the story, who, by the way, Philip K. Dick seems to have two modes. One is where he he thinks and makes interesting characters um, and the other where he doesn't. And this is the doesn't. I don't care about the characters (laughs) in the story, but. The, the humans that act in this story, um, you could almost ask the question, would the events that happen at the end of the story have happened anyways had the humans not actually uh, done the conflict? Yeah, catalyzed the, this, particular, this particular conflict. And I think the answer is inevitably yes. Yeah. Right? So, just, yeah, definitely. They would have had resources. They wouldn't need the resources, right, to keep going. Yeah. Well, I mean, they, well yeah, eventually. Eventually, the, the different artifacts are going to come into conflict over this right. over the same material as everything gets depleted, and then then conflict would erupt, and we'd get the the building of weapons, we'd have the war, and then mm-hmm. the artifacts would die. It's just that the humans sped up that process by putting that nice big tasty chunk of titanium to get the get the two artifacts to uh to fight each other. And thinking about how the TV show, you know, changed, I, I really like, I think the opening scene of this book or this story is stellar, absolutely stellar with the, with the guys, the three guys standing around the, the milk cartons, pouring them down their throats and then acting as if the milk tastes terrible. Right. Mm-hmm. And then the truck sort of pausing, shifting down gears, it's sensors looking over at them and then, and then, you know, pumping out a little, <laughs> query button and then waiting for him and then you know dumping some more milk and all that i think that is just a fabulous sequence that that 
is stupidly replaced in the opening with, I mean, this is really the problem with that show is that they've got this harpoon and it doesn't work and we're all excited. And why is she the gunner? Because she's the main character and she misses. And then, oh, the tension's really high and the music's going. And then uh, we got the other thing. But I was just thinking the whole time, why is she wearing these little round sunglasses? <laughs> Like, I thought <laughs> is she is she got something out. wrong with her eyes, and then for the rest of the show she's not wearing them, and like oh, because it's supposed to make it look steampunk. That's why, mm-hmm. right? And uh, it's, sad. It's, that's sad because I, I think that uh, having a if you shot this film, you know, with just some guys wearing some jumpsuits and a, a truck pulling up with no cab on it, and then lowering some stuff, and then these guys getting mad at the milk and the, angry at the truck. That is a totally amazing Philip K. Dick scene, right? And they've replaced this, it with does, Amazon. But does it work on? But does it work on this on the, on the screen? Oh, as I well? think it I would know. work so well. Oh, yeah. I it, think it, it's it, it, fabulous. If they filmed it, 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 it'd be, it would take some more work to film to make sure that you can see. Okay, there is no cab. It is entirely automated. It, it, would, t- it probably it would take it would take it would take some imagination on the part of the director and cinematographer to pull it off perhaps more than it takes to like to have a amazon drone yeah they did the lazy version now i I will tell you one thing that seeing those the drones which are basically copies of other drones i've seen in other things um one of the things i was thinking when i was watching that is this this actually makes it kind of um connected to the world of skynet you know the terminator movies mm-hmm. where the future is is a robot um, mechanism determined to mm-hmm. destroy all humanity um and and thinking about how in this story with all these different autofacts all on different sides you know all on their own sides that that is a much more bleak human future than the bleak human future of skynet where you just have to defeat one robot, right? One you have to take down one AI and you're done. Here, the ending is 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 we've made ourselves irrevel- irrelevant, right? We've 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 uh, created the not the seeds of our own destruction. It's actually worse than that, as Brian would say. <laughs> we've created the seeds of our own um, redundancy. We've made ourselves, you know, not the premier object of interest. We've made ourselves, you know, into rats, basically. Well, the, it, the this rats is the kind walls. of a theme that that pigeons seems to come to a lot. Is like we're again. This is why I think it's got like this Marxist aspect to him, where he thinks like man is the producer, the mm-hmm. maker. Mm-hmm. It's best, better, but the tinker. Like this is why he loves like the the television repair people or whatever, yep. right? But. Yeah, I, heard I think your that's show a on this in the and, story, and, and you that see was it too. It's like once we're consumers, once we're totally consumers, we might as well just be robots. I, I think that's one of the points of the TV show, and I don't think Dick would disagree with that. They which, are which robots. Makes, <laughs> we lose that aspect of being producers, right? Yeah, yeah it, which which makes me think of uh, recent court cases and issues where. Oh, you're not allowed to actually tinker with your iPhone or with mm. your John Deere tractor and fighting against that. And, and just the, just because of the complexity and the fact that well, cooked up the computers, the inability to go and repair a modern car. I mean, I, I mean, yeah. a, a, a modern car who can't, 
I mean, outside of a repair shop, who can anymore? I mean, my my boss has a 1995 uh, truck, and he can do, tinker with it and do anything he wants with it because it's all pre-computers. It's relatively it's relatively uh, customizable. Where he couldn't do that with a modern car, not, not not unless he had a whole repair shop and computers and everything. So, and it was Charles Strauss who pointed out that basically. The, the cell phone, the iPad is basically a magic wand. Can you can you customize and upgrade and change it? Not really. It just does stuff. If it breaks, you generally get another. Mm-hmm. You gotta take it to a wizard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> you, gotta, you, gotta, you gotta take it to a techno wizard mm-hmm. who, who says the magic right spell. Is, yeah, and Evans right as well. Like if you allow yourself to be soaked in that commercial co- culture and listen to all the advertisements all the time like you kind of are at least semi-artificial like your brain has been so reprogrammed mm. you, yeah. you are kind of an android there's a uh, story i haven't read that rust i want to find out who wrote that evan but uh, there's a story mm-hmm. i covered on uh, reading short and deep podcast um that i think is a very excellent story it's called uh, i probably talked about it with you guys before it's called but who can replace a man by brian aldis and it's about uh, the robots basically in a universe like the one we find in the story um, running the world, producing for mankind. But um, mankind was, uh, because we relied so heavily on the robots, we overpopulated the world um, and re- depleted its resources so that the soil was no longer able to uh, grow food with enough nutrients and there was a, a massive collapse of humanity. And it's told from the robot's point of view. And the robots, uh, you know, want to keep doing their job, which is, you know, producing for man, because that's what they're programmed to do. But uh, the, the robot that has control over a certain garage didn't respond. And the other robots are going around trying to figure out how to find the robot that's responsible and then that robot didn't respond because another robot didn't do its job and that robot didn't it didn't do its job and that you follow the chain of of problems back to the source which was a human failed to uh ask for something right and then these robots are stuck out out in the universe on their own um and they're determined to sort of find new value um and then at the end of the story they come across a lone surviving human who says get me food and they go right back to their yes master immediately yes Yes. that's that's such a heartbreaking ending to that story yeah it is one it is one of my favorite stories it's a terrific story because at one point one of the robots said well maybe we don't need to have man, but then we go at the end and they find the man, and then they go right back to slavery, and it is heartbreaking. And I found I found the story, guys. Yeah, it's it is on. Rust by, oh, by Joseph E. Kellyam. Say that again. Sorry, that Evan was talking. Joseph E. Kellyam, K E L L E A M. I put so like nineteen thirty nine or nineteen forty. 1939. I, I I went Google. I went Googling for Isaac Asimov and Rust and came right across. Came up right up with it. I see it there. Okay, I'm gonna tr- uh, get that and read it. I'm, uh, yeah. I have the uh, last um, page of uh, but who can replace man here? 
Um, and I'll just read the last couple of paragraphs. By early light, the dell looked desolate and cold. From the caves on the far slope, only one man had emerged so far. He was an abject figure. He was small and wizard, and with ribs sticking out like a skeleton's. He was practically naked and shivering. As the big machines bore slowly down on him, they actually want to kill him, right? Because they're free. Um, The man was standing with his back to them, crouching beside the stream. When he swung suddenly to face them, they loomed over him. They saw that his countenance was ravaged by starvation. Get me food, he croaked. Yes, master, said the machines immediately. (laughs) Yes. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. It tears my heart apart. Yes, I'm a human being, but the story makes us sympathize with these poor robots who have been left without a rudder, without a plan, have to figure out things on their own, and just go right back into slavery at the end with with just a few words. It, mm-hmm. it, it, doesn't it tear your heart out? It, it does, but there, there's another thing that you you probably don't remember from the story, and I didn't remember having until I did a show on it, and that is um, in their quest, on their journey across the landscape to find meaning, um, some of the robots break down, um, mm-hmm. and they just leave them behind, right? And and they're like, my, I cannot move. My track has become lodged in a, you know. And then th- they just they say, you know, good luck, brother, and they keep going. See ya. And, oh, and yeah. it's 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 heartrending because brutal. It's it's like a, a death march, right? And and. Uh, it's very interesting that you can tell these stories from different directions, right? They, they are making plans. They are going to make a civilization and meaning on their own, right? And then it's it's ripped out from under them. With the, this story, we can like we can see that there, it's not completely hopeless, but it's pretty damn hopeless because what they've done is recreated life, right? The anti uh, entropy. I think entropy is actually literally called out in the story, right? Mm-hmm. Um, life is an anti-entropy uh, system. It's designed to stop entropy. Right? We can't do it perfectly because of uh, limitations on on our biology, perhaps. Maybe that's why we can't do it so that we can live forever perfectly. But our species, or at least life uh, and DNA, can do it. It, it. it can replicate itself and find new ways to solve problems. And that's what's happening in this story at the end. They, they're going from simply producing plastic houses and buckets of milk to replicating little robots, little robot versions mm-hmm. of themselves. I, I, uh, guy, I sent you guys a tweet about a game. Did you guys see oh, this? Yeah, I just watched that. That looked amazing. Okay, so uh, the reason I, it, I really like how high a ranking it got on... Um, on uh, with Steam, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, the reason I found out about that is I was doing a search for uh, people talking about this story, and somebody who plays the game mentioned it and linked to it in a Reddit thread, and was saying that um, uh, they're saying this is really cool. Um, uh, I wonder, wonder if we're going to get that ability in the game, and I'm like, what ability, right? They're talking about the self-replicating aspect. Oh wow! And they, one guy said, "You already can. You do this, right? So that what when you're playing that game, you're 
it's very addictive apparently and what you do is you build uh factories there's these problems outside <clears throat> the factory zone which are basically humans right it's except they're i think they're just aliens in this case but yeah some biological entity that interferes with your production and then uh your lines of communication and your lines of production and all that stuff it's it can all be improved and replicated and they're adding new features right and then i was looking at the details and one guy um allowed a production to be um the, the game's called factorio by the way i guess i didn't mention that um, yeah and maybe um maybe if people don't know what it is as well like the the just the general concept of it it basically looks like it's like a horrible premise right you go mm. to this natural planet and you're basically finding ways to use up all of its resources to make right. machines and make factories. More factories right it's like a planet destruction game yeah. it's it's kind of it's in the vein of uh sim city or civilization i would say uh, except instead of you know creating a spacefaring civilization or creating a um a city you know with happy people and happy residents and libraries and all that you're just Natural making reasons. factories to make more right. factories to make more factories and and so there, there's with this one aspect what you can do is you can you can give a particular production document that makes more factories and it auto makes more factories wow. so that is like it is becoming uh, recursive right and and that ending that happens in the story is brilliant um, and it doesn't require a basic, um, uh, you know, set of instructions, deliver milk this amount and uh, factory houses this size or anything like that. Instead, it says make more of yourself, which is, is I think, why the ending so so rock solid in the story. Mm-hmm. Yep. The, the, the whole idea of the von Neumann machine. Mm-hmm. Just, make, just, make more, just make more copies of yourself, add infinitum. So you got the rules of robotics, right? Those the as 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 Asimov's mm-hmm. rules of robotics, right? Dick never gives the stuff any. I mean, he rejects all this, yeah. Because right? robots always reprogram themselves, right? So one thing I noticed watching the TV show um, is that, and I, they did this in a few other of the episodes, and that was they added other stories. Kind of mm-hmm. the theme from other stories into this one. So yeah, it's auto. It's an adaptation of Autofact, but there's a few moments where you think you're actually in the Defenders. Mm. You guys remember that story? Yeah, that's the one with the Letties, the robots, right? Yeah. So that's after the war. They the robots are continuing to fight the war on the surface. So that's what the people underground think. Um, right. And when they people get out, they find out that the war's over, and they're actually remaking the world into a pristine paradise, but the humans aren't ready. If they come out, they're just going to fight again. So the robots are keeping them down underground until they're ready. This is turned right. now, into, this adapted just, into a novel as well that we did on the podcast, right? Um, well, the penultimate truth is very different the thematically though, because there it's humans who want right. to keep people below just to exploit them. Right. Right. Cause they're living as like feudal Lords, but it's, it has the a people underground who don't know what's going on. Yeah, the Letties aren't the aren't the protagonists. It's right. the it's the humans. So it's it's kind of a different story, even though it's the same idea. Yeah. So you got the defenders there, and there's also um, the electric ant. Actually, I thought of yeah. when I was watching this yeah. show, where we have a robot like reprogramming himself. That's the one I think right we now. should do uh, with the adaptation. 
uh, other than there's a comic book adaptation, I think we should do the uh, Westworld adaptation because Westworld mm-hmm. with their self-programming robots, that is um, that. And I mean, yeah, you're right, Evan. In this particular one, with when she she I don't know sees reality as it is, right? Instead of seeing herself cutting her head open and blood all over her face, um, and you know, gross stuff underneath her skull, she sees that for some reason transparent head uh, with blue light flowing around inside. Yeah, I love how they have lights in their heads. Like, <laughs> for what reason? I don't know. <laughs> it, it. I mean, that whole scene kind of reminds me of, uh, although although it turns out he's not one up. The scene in Ex Machina where the where the protagonist is cutting himself open to see if he is actually a right, robot himself right. because he's his mind's just been turned around the on the bend by his experience with Ava and that's well done because at that point in the movie we're not sure he isn't right he, yeah there's, yeah there's nothing there's nothing that uh, would give, give give us give us away one way or the other so it's like oh God is he really right no thank God mm-hmm. speaking of this this really bothered me on the TV show. Mm-hmm. Is when she has this, she blanches when she's exposed to the truth that they're just robot replacements, and she has this big dramatic scene where she right. smashes the 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 capsule. Right? Mm. She's known for weeks, right? That yeah. she's a robot. I think she's supposed to be. Why acting? is she blanched? I don't know. Act? She's a really good actor, then I guess. Yeah, I guess yeah. I think it was all part of the ruse, but yeah, that was. It's very just believable. basically to trick the audience, right? Yeah, <laughs> and the and the. Uh, the similar lacrum. Yeah, but more importantly, to trick the audience because mm-hmm. the, she was the simulacra lady was busy. Oh, and by the way, there was a stupid line in there um, that I guess it was supposed to justify the the shower sex scene as well. Mm-hmm. When the lady walks into the oh, she, notice in the story, um, the robot uh, you know inquisitor comes on foot. And in the movie, they send it, or the TV adaptation, again, they do a giant drone thing. Um, so that that whole um, video ver- visualization version is important. I want to talk, talk about why that's important. But before I do that, I want to say that the, the, uh, when she shows up, and they say, why does she look like that? And he says, well, they, they, they're probably experimenting with sex robots or something like that. Mm. And, and it's like, no, that's just your excuse for having a sex scene earlier. <laughs> because it, it, think of how unsexy the autofact robots are in the original story. They have nothing to do with sex, except at the end, right, where they're making copies of themselves. And are they clones? Um, I think we're supposed to think they're little robot copies of the original Autofact, but there is that, um, it's a hawk, I think, right, that comes down into it from mm-hmm. the other uh, Autofact. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, that could have been a sex act if you think about it. It's kind of weird. Uh, but it's yeah, certainly changed sure. by its environment. It doesn't have DNA. But it's certainly changed by its its environment, and I think that that the fact that it's it's got a little uh, vent that's shooting out uh, seeds into space and other parts of the atmosphere, it's 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 a very nice reveal that Philip K. Dick has been thinking hard about this. Is when you make a um, 
an uncontrollable system like capitalism or a, um, a von Neumann machine, yeah, yeah, a von Neumann machine, um, it's going to have a consequence upon you that you may not be happy with. It's it's almost a, a Grey Goose story as well. Instead oh, of oh, absolutely, yeah. It's, instead of yeah, being... paper clips, we're getting we're getting buckets of milk. Yeah, and that's what I liked more about the story that they changed in the TV show because in the TV show it seemed it wasn't like such a mindless program that was just like running unrestrained. It was more it was like a much more self aware um, autofag that seemed a bit more like yeah, it's like it's FEMA, right? It's FEMA uh, automated. So mm. that you know, uh, I, th- I think about, I was thinking about how Hades has just been so badly done by by the United States over and over and over and over again, and every time there's a natural disaster in Haiti, right? The uh, the NGOs come in and they help. They help so hard that everybody's basically worse off than they were <laughs> before they started helping. <laughs> that's a good way to think about it. Yeah, that's true. And th- and in, in that case, you know, if you were if you were a person living in Haiti and you're seeing this system and you're trying to jam the system, culture jam it so that it doesn't, You, or how, how do they put it in the story, gear up, uh, uh, jam up the works, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the the agency and the action that, that is done in this, this story to try and, you know, set a trap for the uh, autofax is pretty good. And the way you would do that in reality is you, you, you fake a natural disaster. Um, I mean, this is almost what happened in Somalia. You guys remember when the U.S. got it? Uh, this is the remem- Remembrance Day when we're recording this. But the United States was involved in some, uh, Somalia in delivering um, food through the warlords past, uh, you know, the warlords trying to get the food directly to the people, NGOs and, and special mm-hmm. operations. And, and the warlords laid a trap for... These guys, and this got turned into a movie called Black Hawk Down, right? Down, yep. Um, and it sort of burned the United States on action there, at least overt action that was public. And that's almost what we're ha- we have happening here. You've got this giant system that you're not in charge of, that you can't really understand or fathom, that's operating in your zone, controlling your resources and determining who's running your stuff. And then you try and jam it up, but you can't really stop it. There's no way Somalia can can stop the United States. All it can do is sort of change the game in the local area. And the mm-hmm. the I mean, think about Iraq, right? <laughs> Iraq under continual occupation since 2003. Um, is there anything they can do in Iraq to you know make their own agents agency happen? Not really. Because it's not deter- it's not up to them, and that's really the same thing is going on in these cargo cults, right? Is that there are just massive forces that you cannot comprehend how big they are, you know, compared to your atoll. There's this giant nation that has the industrial capacity, uh, you know, millions and millions and millions of times what your island is capable of producing, and it has an agenda that you cannot fathom or or control that's that's the power of this story it's really interesting mm-hmm. that's why it still resonates today because it's even it's more it's more relevant than ever mm-hmm. as, as 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 some of some of those masks that may have been 
oblivious to the average Southern Californian living in suburbia in 1955 may have not just thought about too much. Now it's now it's a little more omnipresent in our panopticon society. We can see these operations at work and see that Dick did see through a glass clearly instead of darkly. Um, Evan, did you say something about the in your podcast? Do you remember saying something about the weeds that were growing everywhere? Are the vines? I, yeah, vines. That's what it was. Vines and uh, weeds are mentioned in the first, I think. Yes, sentence. But I may have. I don't. Yeah, I was just uh, sort of. It's just sort of things taking over and that thing. But the the thing that I really noticed in this, and it's something I've noticed. You know, I, I was just doing the show notes for our our last Philip K. Dick show, which is going to come out tonight, but uh, has already come out long ago for the people who are hearing this. Um. I was talking about how Ch- Philip K. Dick talks about children, and he always this is you know writing stories where children are the main characters in a science fiction story, which is very strange. I mean, not always, but he does he does it, and almost nobody else does it. You know, there's a Ray Bradbury story where there's children in it, but it's you know not really science fiction. It's more fantasy or you know whatever. But Philip K. Dick's sort of obsessed with children, and then I noticed that there's something he's else he's obsessed with. I probably noticed this before, and it's in here as well, and that's insects. Did you guys notice the insects yeah. in this story? Hmm, I didn't pay a lot of attention to the uh, so, insects. No, so, I, I did. Tell us more. Yeah, I didn't reread the story. So there's um the yeah. bugs. He talks about the bugs of the the uh, the creatures that come. To, oh, the mother uh, bugs or something. Yeah, and uh, thinking about how you know, there's that episode Metalhead of of um, Black Mirror, and it's kind of a bug, you know. Um, and yeah. of course, that's also how they appear, sort of insect-like in uh, Second Variety, right? And this is a kind of could have been set in the same universe as Second Variety as well, um, in a lot mm-hmm. of ways, right? Or maybe that Second Variety is a sequel, depending on how you look at it, right? Um, so, uh, I, I just did a search. It doesn't come up a lot in the story, the word insect, just, um, five or six times. Oh, five times. Okay. The first time I'll read this helicopters, rotor, helicopter rotors wind tinnily above O'Neill's head. By the way, that's their helicopter, right? He ignored them. Oh, maybe not. Yeah. He ignored them and peered through the cabin window at the ground, not far below. So they have a level of technology that they're still employing. The only aircraft that are in the TV adaptation are the ones controlled by the autofac. Slag and ruin stretched everywhere. Weeds poked their way up, sickly stalks among which insects scuttled. Here and there, rat colonies were visible, matted hovels constructed of bone and rubble. Radiation had mutated the rats, along with most insects and animals. A little farther, O'Neill identified a squadron of birds pursuing a ground squirrel. The squirrel dived into a carefully prepared crack in the surface of the slag and the birds turned thwarted. So I, I love these l- little details of, I mean, he is actually a, a, even when he's doing sort of these low character stories, he's actually a really good writer. And I, I used to think, and I used to agree with people and I was completely wrong that Philip K. Dick was sort of a clunky writer, but I think it's not true at all. I, I, he I has out, some really beautiful lines. Oh, yeah. And uh, here's here's the f- opening. Uh, tension hung over the three waiting men. They smoked, paced back and forth, kicked aimlessly at weeds growing by the side of the road. 
A hot noonday sun glared down on the brown fields, rows of neat plastic houses, the distant line of mountains to the west. So that uh, description, it's not beautiful in a bucolic, uh, romantic poet sense, but it is evocative. And it gives you the kind of contrast that Philip K. Dick's always doing, which is the contrast between uh, humans and human conversation and sort of the perception of reality as it yeah. is especially it's really good timing too yes very good timing mm. yeah so here's the next insects that shows up um maybe o'neill said slapping at a mosquito and you remember this right i, I think this is pretty that i thought that was a pretty evocative he says the insect dodged cannily and then buzzed over to annoy fernie fernie swung viciously at it and squatted sullenly down against the damp vegetation and there was what they had come to see. O'Neill realized with a start that they had been looking at it for several minutes without recognizing it. The search bug lay abst- absolutely still. It rested at the crest of a, small, uh, of a small rise of slag, its anterior end slightly raised. Receptors fully extended. It might have been an abandoned hulk. There was no activity of any kind, no sign of life or consciousness. The search bug flitted perfect, sorry, fitted perfectly into the wasted, fire-drenched landscape, a vague tub of metal sheets and gears and flat treads. It rested and waited and watched. So I love that he's he's setting us up with a mosquito. Uh, and then we get another kind of bug, right? Mm. And it's like, oh, that's brilliant. You know, the, he, he, he has this whole story that is very easy to toss off as not not very interesting and sort of a comedy piece called expendable you guys know this story yeah it's a fun one mm-hmm. yeah so yeah. it's a it's about a guy who he, he comes i think he's come home from work and there's ants or something on his lawn and uh the the uh, uh there's a spider in his house <laughs> and it starts talking to him and he's like, I'm going crazy. And then he realizes, no, no, the spider knows what's going on. There's a war between spiders and insects. And he's got to pick a side. And he he goes against, you know, the one side. And then at the end of the story, um, <laughs> the, uh, the, the, in, the spiders are saying basically, well, you know, he was expendable in our vast war against the insects. Um, there are going to be many casualties, right? Because the, the man has died or something. Um, and then there's a great line also in there about how the birds are watching and twittering, right? So the birds are sort of <laughs> the masters of the whole thing because they get to eat everything. <laughs> um, but uh, the the fact that Philip K. Dick will pay attention to little things like insects and say these are these one day, as people were saying at the time. After nuclear war, what will the only be the thing that will survive? Cockroaches. Cockroaches, right? And that's exactly what's happening, except they're not uh, literal cockroaches. They're figurative robotic cockroaches that Mm. um, (laughs) look like cockroaches, except they're bigger. And so this search bug is there, but that's not the only one. There's another kind of insect that shows up in here, too. And that is... um, a moth. In fact, there's. I think there's. It's mentioned a few times. Let's see. All right. Yeah, Here that's we go. true. I remember all these now that you're saying them. Yeah, this is chapter three. Listen this. to this. Opening of chapter three. 
In the moth-ridden darkness of the night, a dim wind stirred, chill and faint. Dense underbrush rattled metallically. Awesome. Here and there, a nocturnal rodent prowled, its senses hyper-alert, peering, planning, seeking food. Right? He is so good. He's setting us up for the whole thing. Right? Mm -hmm. We are becoming those creatures in a certain sense. We think we're all tricky and stuff, but we're not. And then right before the arrival at the tungsten pile, listen to this. Um, During the last few days, both the Detroit and Pittsburgh factories had run short on tungsten. And in a last one sector, and in at least one sector, the apparatus had overlapped. This sluggish heap represented precision cutting tools, parts ripped from electrical switches, high-quality surgical equipment, sections of permanent magnets, measuring devices, the tungsten from every possible source gathered feverishly from all the settlements. And then, dark mist lay spread over the tungsten mound. Occasionally, a night moth fluttered down, attracted by the glow of the reflected starlight. The moth hung momentarily, beat its elongated wings futilely against the interwoven tangle of metal, and then drifted off into the shadows of the thick-packed vines that rose up from the stumps of sewer pipes. Wow, cool. It is yeah, is really so cool good. that, that I mean, a, a moth is a, is a symbol for, you know, um, for death. It's a, It goes into a little coffin that it builds itself, and then comes out transformed, flies away. Often they're white, right? It's a it's a long-standing tra- symbol for death and transformation. It's very cool that he's he's adding little touches like this. This is supposedly the guy who's high on uh, methamphetamines, busy writing rapidly to make money. Um, yeah. That does not sound. I mean, I've seen more poetic stuff, I guess, but he's adding l- these little touches on top of the fact that he's got a a, a real groundbreaking short story here or novelette. Mm-hmm. That's it. Really impressive. There was another passage that I can kind of remember that was really, that I thought was really cool where the factory representative arrives where mm-hmm. he kind of like it, he thinks it's a human first and then like there's this weird kind of yes um, long sentences as you kind of realize it's got like antennas or some weird parts. And then it ends with like the factory representative had arrived it's just like, <laughs> see if I can find it. He does that. it so well. I don't know if you can find it. Um, hmm. It's probably before the, the insect tech, like the Dick does a lot. I don't know the genealogy of that or if he's one of the in, inventors of it, but uh, I think it's in the simulacrum. You have the advertisements are delivered by little flies. Yeah, mm. it's definitely Those little Google ads come into people's ears. At. And I think it's all the way back in like uh, the man who japed that there's these juveniles that yeah, spy that's on right. people. Yep. They're like little yep. spider things. That, that actually, I think in Minority Report, the movie, those little spy spider things, I think that was, those are actually from the man who japed. Yeah. And there's also, is it the maze of death uh, where he has like the bee or something, the little artificial bees? It sounds, something bringing it the news, familiar. I think. I can't remember. Yeah. I've got that section of uh, of the text here. Uh, well, they're raw material tropic. As long as there's anything left, they'll hunt it down. O'Neill pondered the idea with growing interest. It's something to consider. I suppose as things get scarcer, dash, dash, he stopped talking. A figure had come into the room. It stood silently by the door, surveying them all. 
In the dull shadows, the figure looked almost human. For a brief instant, O'Neill thought it had it was a settlement latecomer. Then, as it moved forward, he realized that it was only quasi-human, a functioning upright biped chassis with data receptors mounted on top, effectors and proprioceptors mounted in a downward worm that ended in floor grippers. It, yeah, uh, that's... It's, yeah, its resemblance to a human being was testimony to nature's efficiency. No sen- sentimental imitation was intended. The factory representative had arrived. Now, contrast that with the lady in a cat suit and... I don't know. Right, exactly. <laughs> Metal on her head. It's so good. And if, if you know, the fact that it has a gender in in the TV version is again a testament to the times we live in, and not the the story, right? The the fact that she comes in a, a quite a production, right, with mm-hmm. you know, the lights in the middle of the night, as opposed to Dramatic. this coming right into the meeting, and if you guys recall the the TV show, there's a whole lot of sound and fury that comes to nothing in the television adaptation, which is the meeting is what we're going to do and what 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 all these I don't know community people at the community meeting. None of that happens in the story, and it comes to nothing in the in the adaptation, right? All, other better. than tell us there's a bunch of people disagreeing, right? Mm. And whereas in this we 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 know that there's at least two communities involved um, in this project. They have a common goal. We don't need to know how they came to this goal. In fact, that's less important than anything else. It's so unimportant that Philip K. Dick didn't even bother to point to it. He just says, you know, this is how they are. The the there is one woman in this in the story. Her name is Judith. Um, she's O'Neill's wife. And there's actually a line in here that's pretty funny because. It could be interpreted until you you're reading it. It could be that Judith is coming up with an idea, though, because it said O'Neill, right? <laughs> because her name is Judith O'Neill, I think. And then right. the wife, and then you realize no, it's him who's talking. Um, but she she's the one who's holding the metallic paper that says it's a a list of delivery items, and it says six words, which are something like um, no more deliveries or something like that. Ah, uh, yeah. O'Neill scanned. Uh, O'Neill scanned the paper. Oh no, I'll just read the whole section here. As the truck pulled into the Kansas City settlement, Judith hurried breathlessly towards them, fluttering in her hand. And, uh, no fluttering breasts in this story, as far as I can tell. Fluttering in her hand was a strip of metal foil paper. What is it? O'Neill demanded, grabbing it from her. Just come. His wife struggled to catch it, her breath. A mobile car raced up, dropped it off, and left. Big excitement. Golly, the factory's blaze of lights. You can see it for miles. O'Neill scanned the paper. So that could be either Judith or him, right? But it's him. It was a factory certification for the last group of settlement placed orders. Notice that they, this is something you don't notice at the beginning, that they actually are placing the orders. They are asking for stuff. And that's why they have back order sheets, right? Things that they can't get because they're not available yet because there's no tungsten. So they're actually, this is like, this is almost like you're living on, uh, in Puerto Rico and you, you want to jam up the relationship that you have with the factories overseas. 
um, but you still need the stuff. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. it's a terrible kind of conflict. Anyways, I'll keep reading this. Big big excitement, golly, the factory blaze of lights. You can see it for miles. O'Neill scanned the paper. It was a factory certification for the last group of settlement placed orders. A total tabulation of requested and factory analyzed needs. So you can ask for things, but you're also getting stuff delivered whether you want it or not. Stamped across the list in heavy black type were six foreboding words. All shipments suspended until further notice. And then as soon as this happens... You know, you've got Kansas City, Pittsburgh, Detroit. These are all the the communities that are working on this project. Um, they start questioning whether they should have done it, right? Mm-hmm. They say, we got what we wanted, didn't we? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so... This is uh, this is exactly the kind of relationship that the native people around here have a problem with when they start trading with the Hudson's Bay Company, right? So once you once you go for a gun, once you start using a rifle for your hunting, which makes things way easier, right? Level of skill mm-hmm. involved in bow hunting is incredibly high compared to the level of skill involved in in rifle hunting. Rifle, you can be 100, 150 meters, 200 meters away and get a kill, no problem. With a bow, you have to be like 40 meters away maximum, and that's with maximum skill. So trying to sneak sneak up on an animal for your dinner it requires intense training for years and years. Your your kids have to spend a lot of time doing it and practicing and you know maintaining their equipment, but they don't have to rely on outside sources of of uh, you know bullets. They can make them locally. And mm-hmm. that that whole this is actually the whole relationship that countries have in things like NAFTA and and uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. If you don't have your own means of production, if you don't have some sort of control, you are fucked because you are out of the you are unable to participate. You are unable to do so. It, 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 this is a very political and very insightful story. British Columbia has, where I live, has uh, something called the Agricultural Land Reserve. Because we're a rocky uh, province with lots of people living in it, we have limited areas where you could grow food. And if the United States decided to cut off our supplies of, of trade, we would starve to death unless we have an agricultural land reserve, an amount of land that we could start growing our food with. And right now... In BC, there's a uh, a very um, good move, I think, on the part of the provincial government. It's barely in place, but they're trying to prevent another pipeline being brought in from Alberta. Canadian government bought the pipeline from the big evil corporation out of Texas, made it a crown corporation to try and ram it through. And Alberta, uh, a government that has this exact same party as the one in BC right now, is trying to ram it through, and there's almost a trade war between the two provinces. If you don't have control over your landscape, you can't control the amount of pollution that goes into your oceans, that gives you your fisheries, you are screwed. That's mm-hmm. what this story is all about. It's not only about robots and the technology, it's also about capitalism and yeah, economics. I think. Yeah. You mentioned the, the Native Americans, I think of like a an example that gets more to the point would have been like even the beaver trappers 
Yes. Because they're hunting beavers, giving the furs to the French or yeah, the French or whatever, trade. right? But what they're getting in return is booze, guns, but also like the very tools that they're using to hunt the, you know, the, right. the beavers more effectively, more efficiently, whatever, which increased production of beavers leading to extinction of beavers in many areas of North America. And it becomes a kind of cyclical thing, but they become trapped because, again, they don't control the technology anymore. That's right. They're not in production. And, and once you, you, you know, you, you have a rifle, you can uh, use it as long as you have think. bullets. I but if you don't... So long as we're doing this series. Uh, uh, I think we can disconnect for a second. Hello? Yeah. Sorry. Okay. Yeah, okay. Okay. This is you were talking about. So anyway, the, uh, the actual ebook of this collection of stories for the TV series has, has uh, openings by each of the uh, directors who, directed the episode and they talk about what they directed and why. And I want to read this out to you all. Please. So, oh, so this is, so, yep. I just, I just only realized this as I was looking for to look, to look through the book, like, Oh wait, there's an introduction here. So anyway, Travis Beecham is the guy who directed the, the, the episode artifact. And this is what he has to say about the story. Artifact wasn't the story I was initially planning to adapt, but was the story that took root and stuck with me and demanded to be adapted. It's an intoxicatingly simple but startlingly fresh premise. This world in which the survivors of some apocalyptic war are trying to shut down an automated factory, blindly ravaging the land long after the fall of civilization. You always see stories about malevolent artificial intelligence rebelling against its programming and trying to destroy its creators for some reason. And this story follows a similar path, but in the end is something very different. What's brilliant about Artifact is that the factory isn't a machine running amok. It's a machine doing exactly what its ingenious but irresponsible creators had built it to do. This machine is not for a newly awakened alien intellect bent on the destruction of humanity, but rather a kind of monkey's paw that forces us to confront the consequences mm. of our desires as a culture. That to me seems to me not only a touch more realistic of the traditional robot rebellion yarn, but also a more timely technological parable in some ways, because it isn't actually about technology. Technology in the story is a little more than the ghost of who we used to be, reenacting our mistakes in perpetuity. We're not fighting it, we're fighting ourselves. We're fighting our own nature. It's ultimately about humanity, which is really the mark of a great Philip K. Dick story. Mm. Mm. I think that's true. He doesn't seem to address his his change of the ending um, at all. But. Yeah, because what he's saying sounds um, awesome, but I felt like he went away from that in the TV show. Yeah, or, or the, I agree. The story did because, especially the whole idea that humanity is already extinct, so this thing is creating the demand for the the process that it wants to do. You know, like that kind of. Mm-hmm. That is kind of an interesting aspect of it, though, Marissa. Mm. Like in the story, it's a story. It's a, it's about expanding markets, mm-hmm. right? which is really a good story for the fifties, where you have the expansion of capitalism after World War II. What you have now is this manufacturing markets, right? Markets have to be created. A product right. is made, and then you got to find buyers for it, right? So I really was interested in this idea in the TV show, the adaptation, that. You know, if they're, you know, the machine is going to need a market some way. And if it has to invent them, it, it will do that. Yeah, which is kind me of, too. I feel like it, it didn't totally, I don't know if it totally made sense in the end, but I, I also agree that that was really, I like that, that it wasn't just like runaway production, but also creating more demand to fulfill the runaway production. That's pretty fun. But I'm not sure if it makes sense why the, why the um, autofact or whatever they call it in the show would do that. 
because it seemed so much more intelligent than the kind of dumb autofac in Philip K. Dick's story. It, it is well, more intelligent. Were there, people? Were there there were some survivors, but the autofac killed them and replaced them. No, no, I get no, I got. Was everyone dead from the war? Everyone was dead from the war. Yeah, and so the autofact, the autofact, who's was designed to make stuff for people, had nobody to make people, nobody to make stuff for, so it decided to make people to make stuff for. Mm. Kind of, kind of, kind of like reinforcing, reimagining its own existence. Now I'm thinking of Jesse. We were talking, I think, last week about uh, I have no mouth and I must scream. Here, I mean, here the AI is trying to find a justification for itself, and it's, it's like, okay, I will make consumers to make stuff for. Whereas the AI in that story has cannot wonder or wander, can only simply be, and so it just goes crazy. Mm-hmm. So it's a different, so it's a different sort of reaction to the problem of of people on the part of but, artificial intelligence. Yeah, and I do like that, and I think that is what we do as well. Like it, it totally just like matches society now that we are like creating that fake demand and stuff, but. I don't know, something didn't quite gel in the story for me. You're talking in the adaptation, right? In the adaptation, yeah. Adaptation, yeah. yeah. I think I, I, I prefer philokinetic stories with lots of funny characters and, and uh, wives that are um, fluttering on the kitchen angsty about their new stove or whatever it is. But um, he does have some real chops when it comes to thinking economic stuff through and... And and it, he does add some great little touches that make it almost poetic. Listen, this is um, again with the vines here. Uh, the three of them were tensely silent. Above them, the circling dot of the black drew closer. There was no sign of activity from the flat surface of a metal and on concrete. The Kansas City factory remained inert, totally unresponsive. Oh, by the way. Um, if we were doing the rhetoriser, the Philip K. Dick rhetoriser, um, that sort of turn of phrase is is something he does all the time. It remained inert, totally unresponsive. He's just repeating himself, and he also uses <laughs> rigid somewhere in here that, uh, which is terrific. But um, My favorite. Oh, I think it's so good because it's in his very first story. Um, listen to this. A few billows of warm ash drifted across it, and one end was partly submerged in rubble. The factory had taken numerous direct hits. Across the plain, the furrows of its subsurface tunnels lay exposed, clogged with debris and the dark water-seeking tendrils of tough vines. Those damn vines, Fernie grumbled, picking up an old sore and uh, uh, picking at an old sore and unshaven chin. <laughs> These guys are not in good shape. They're taking over the world. He's talking about the vines. <laughs> He's worried about the wrong thing. Yeah, <laughs> that was so funny. Here and there, around the factory, the demolished ruin of a mobile extension rusted in the morning dew. Carts, trucks, search bugs, factory representatives, weapons carriers, guns, supply trains, subsurface projectiles, indiscriminate parts of machinery mixed and fused together in shapeless piles. Some had been destroyed returning to the factory. Others had been contacted as they they emerged, fully loaded, heavy with equipment. The factory itself, what remained of it, seemed to have been settled more deeply into the earth, its upper surface barely visible, almost lost in drifting ash. So they think they've they've won their victory, and then they go investigate further. They discover that it's just moved it's just moved into a different mode. It's 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 in its cocoon, right? Mm. And it's about to start delivering 
and they find uh, they go looking for it and they find a uh, a vent it's like an ovipositor or something right that's shooting out little um tiny factories into the air it's beautiful this is a really terrific story yeah and i love how they just kind of give up at that point it's like oh well it's that's over <laughs> hey <laughs> they kind of, they're, that they're age like of mankind is over right this is their last yeah. gasp don't they say something like uh, yeah they're like oh well, i hope it you know like that it can spread out into the universe or something that'd be cool <laughs> <laughs> maybe some of them are geared to escape velocity that would be neat <laughs> yeah. Autofact networks throughout the whole universe. <laughs> Is he being ironic? <laughs> it's like they've just like totally given up. Like they're just like, oh wow, the fight's over. So now we'll just yeah think about how neat the the machine is. <laughs> Behind him, the nozzle continued to spread out its torrent of metal seeds. <laughs> That's pretty terrific. So good. Yeah, and uh, it, it's it is almost uh, inevitability of. Uh, you know, as long as you look at it as a metaphor, he's he's predicted the future, right? He's predicted the present. Um, obviously, we're not spitting out that many metal seeds, but we're certainly we're certainly <laughs> spitting out uh, Teslas into orbit for no reason, right? Just to just to fuck with them, like looking for new markets for cars or shooting them out into outer space. <laughs> <laughs> There's something. Pretty. He he really um he he's a terrific science fiction writer when he wants to be. But I I do I I do notice that this is this is very much a different kind of storytelling than he does in his um, novels generally. They're not like this. They're much more about humans and their relationships to each other. And I'm not usually that kind of person who wants to read those stories, but he's really good at it. And and then he does have these ideas that he engages with here. Here, this, the the characters are just so flat that there's yeah there's I, no I I can't really tell them. them I I mean that's that is one thing that the the adaptation does better we actually do get a character whereas guess, the story yeah. is just whereas this story the story the story is all about the idea and working through those ideas which is it is as you pointed out just a different mode than that we normally get from Tolkien Dick, but it's a mode where he actually does actually do well because you think about it like oh god, this is and, 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 but it's such a downer ending. It's like oh crap, humanity loses. I was trying to figure out like I spent a lot of time while watching it trying to figure out like they kept some of the characters' names, but they also like so the main character uh, played by Juno Temple that's the real actress's name presumably. Um, her character name is Emily Zabriskie, and like Zabriskie is a it, there's a movie called Zabriskie Point. Uh, it's it's a there's a real place that's uh, to do with borax, right? Um, the mining of borax. Um, although I just don't know why she's named that. She's not in the story. Alice, that's the robot uh, rep- company representative. Um, I don't uh, Alice in Wonderland is I don't know why. And then we have Morrison and uh, Perrine and uh, I guess um, O'Neill's has been replaced by Emily. But um, yeah, just their, their attempt to make it more interesting by adding character, I think, took away from the power of the idea. Um, and then the the ending that they have, it's, it's, it's cute, but it doesn't make any sense in the end. You, you don't come away thinking... Logically, this is a. 
it, it works at the moment, but it's it, yeah, it's, but an issue. So after classic. talking to you guys about it and realizing what a monster she is and how dark that ending really is, I think I actually like it better. Uh, well, yes, but they're not. Uh, <laughs> see, they're not trying to make you think that. They're trying to go the other way, right? I don't think that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so you like it for the? I like you. Yeah. I like your ending better. <laughs> yeah. Well. Yeah, but uh, we shouldn't like that. <laughs> I understand why you like it because it's so dark, but um, that's not. There's no hint of that in the show, right? No. Yeah, it's tough. But it's it would be a better story. Like it, could, it can makes me enjoy that uh, oh, watching yeah. that character more. Like thinking, like, oh yeah, that's really actually very she's dark. Just what she's a doing. Real monster, right? In every yeah. sense of the term, she's a monster. She's not the sweet tinkerer. She's yeah, yeah, kind of brutal. Yeah, yeah, the, the yeah, just the looking backward at everything she, she's done or what she's doing, like, oh crap, yeah, she's she's not she's not the happy-go-lucky mm-hmm. fixer. She she's she's wholly calculating witch who has a agenda, <laughs> and she's going and sacrificing her uh, compatriots to do it is totally on her plate. Mm. I, I I mean, but consider that because she's her goal is to get to that thing so she can get get the the logic bomb plugged in. Yeah. She in the end right. doesn't care what her two whether two companions succeed or fail. She if just doesn't care. They're, they're, they're there for distractions. distraction, yeah. And in you, in fact, her her having them there with the bombs, you have to presume that she she disabled the bombs so that they wouldn't actually go off in case her her main plan didn't work. Right? Oh, that's <laughs> oh, not seen explicitly, but yeah, that and it would have to be, otherwise, you know, it just doesn't. I would love, but she I'd didn't even need to bring them the either, show. right? Why does she need to bring them? Just to, yeah, it, she I mean, just it, said, it really, oh, we got a plan with Alice. No, it's just, it's, I only need, only need me to go. Yeah. No, 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 they're there. No, I, we, we said it right. They're there as distraction and the, yeah. the overt. The overthought, like, oh look, here's the scary bombs. While she gets in and unleashes her, she kills uh, her old boyfriend too. And now I, that I, I think guess, about it, <laughs> yeah. And I guess she knew somehow um, about the other thing which I hated about the TV show, which was the humanoid killbot. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah the stupid. red light face that. Oh 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 yeah, the Cylon. Yeah, what? Uh, yeah, I, I wonder what that. I saw that. Like, oh come on. Yeah, and it's so brief. They just like threw it in there, and it's just like a man walking around in a suit, like with a weird hood on. Like, <laughs> yeah, that, that that yeah, that could that could they they could have handled that a lot better. Because I was thinking of that Black Mirror episode as well. What's it called again, Jesse? Metalhead. You've mentioned Metalhead. Metalhead. Yeah, like that would have been way more cool if there was weird machines in there that were really scary, hunting down people. But it was just a man walking around with a weird. You can Good. really see the difference, be, you know, in writing. I don't know who wrote Metalhead, but whoever wrote that had an economy of storytelling. And the, I mean, it's I think it's all in black and white as well, right? Um, yeah. The, the purpose of it being in black and white is obscure to me, but it seems like a good choice based on the fact that I I think it it worked very well. What I can tell you is I we start in a position where we don't know what's going on in that one, and then. Uh, we are inevitably taken on a terrible journey. Where mm-hmm. in this one, we start with a position where everybody's having meetings and they have an action sequence to, that precedes that that is poor. Sex drama, uh, yeah, sex ship drama, arriving all, drama. It, it's, it's just all like, the drama. like, you know, like if there was a, um, 
uh, a class, if you were grading all the television and there's a class and you were trying to grade the students, the people writing this are not a students. They're not anywhere close because they're just uh, like uh, you can make excuses. And I, I'd like to maybe they don't have any time. They wrote it in a week and they have to do, they have to fit in. Like sometimes the teacher will give you terrible assignment. Like you have to fit in 18 vocab words that don't go together. Right. And, and uh, with your subject. And here they've got they've got to have a nude scene. <laughs> <laughs> they've got to have yes. uh, a kill kill bot, and they've got to have a action sequence with the harpoon at the beginning. And they're like, okay, <laughs> I'm going to do my best. And that's what they got. But uh, Metalhead, is it's the same idea, exactly the same premise. They're trying to solve their problems. Um, but that's not what they started. They started with a great story. Oh, that opening is so good. I mean, two guys, three guys standing around waiting. For, you don't know why. Um, then they talk about how not one of the guys, they don't know him very well. Then he s- says, okay, get ready. You know what? Follow the plan. And then they do this whole acting scene where they pretend th- that the milk tastes terrible. <laughs> like, so and, the, and there's a truck sitting there with its sensor banks, right? That is, it stopped and didn't run them over. And it's looking at them as... as it stops as as they do this performance, and it's like, oh shit, something's wrong with the milk. <laughs> so there's this great interaction between a non-human creature that that doesn't understand their semantic sensibilities, and so when they say this is terrible, as they're spooking, uh, spilling the milk out from their mouths and spitting it on the ground and throwing the cans down, right? That whole sensibility is th- that's a performance designed to elicit the response that they got and they achieved something they interacted with a robot in a way that no one had ever done before this is massive success and then their tungsten plan everything goes perfectly right Mm -hmm. and then it's a massive failure because they're they were already irrelevant wow (laughs) that's a great that's a great sort of setup and premise and and just i think i think you know you don't in in a science fiction story, right? The usual complaint is you can have scenes so fantastic they would be too expensive to film. That's usually the ex, you know the yeah. And what do we got here? We got lots of uh, visual effects in the television adaptation that would are way more expensive than what was actually shown in the at least the opening sequence. But because mm-hmm. it doesn't have uh, an action sequence with a harpoon and and I, what are those glasses? <laughs> black, cl- black, uh, round, druggy glasses, or what, what are they called? I don't know. Yeah, it's, it, it's a whole steampunk vibe that they're they're doing at the beginning because it doesn't have that. It doesn't snap. Well, I'll tell you, I've never seen on film people pretending that milk tastes bad and talking to a truck. I think that yeah. brilliant. Yeah, it's so good. And it was so Philip K. Dick. It's unbelievable, right? It's like a, there's nothing. There's the only thing that would be more Philip K. Dick that you could film is if you have a guy getting into an argument with his his toaster, right, or his door when he's trying to get out yeah. out of his door. Come on, I'll pay you when I get home. I I, I gotta go to work. No, you owe me a quarter. Oh. <laughs> you know, and it's it's one of those things. It it could become like a classic scene, like if you did oh, that it's right. So it's so, so classic, right? Yeah. And you don't need to make it all about the sex scenes. 
right? Because right. it's not. Uh, I mean, you could do the whole film with with just. Oh, it's so it's so could have been amazing. This is a, one of the yeah. best episodes they had, and it was it was mm-hmm. okay. Mm-hmm. But they didn't. Yeah, it was entertaining. It, yeah, it was. There's I, one I, thing I want to mention about the TV show. Yeah. Because this is something I see a lot in, in science fiction and dystopian stuff. Is, um, I mean, beside the fact that they're they're just hippies, which yeah doesn't seem quite right to me. Um, I mean, hippies are countercultures within a functioning society, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know how well they would do in an actual apocalyptic situation, but I, I'm talking about the meetings, right? There's always conflict, right? They can't agree. Yep. You know, there's different factions and conflict, right? There's not a the idea that people in a post-apocalyptic setting can just sit down and figure out what needs to be done and and agree. You don't see that very often, I think. And it's always Dr. like Blood Money has has stuff. some of that. Which one? Doctor yeah, Doctor Blood, Blood, Blood Money. Does, well, there's some conflict there, but more or less those communities seem to endure and and. Mm-hmm. They survive and just don't they, leave your horse down. Because even when it's things horrible, like in Doctor Blood, many they have to kill that the the teacher who was actually a spy, right? Right. He wanted to kill the doctor, and they had to like execute him. But they agreed, and they they came to a consensus about that. But so often, when you look at this post-apocalyptic literature, especially you know on TV shows, but you know that's where I see a lot of it. It's always humans or, have to fight each other. Or think of how they deal with it in Terminator series and TV show and all that, right? Is that it, there's it's a military system. And John Connor, a.k.a. Mm-hmm. J.C., a.k.a. Jesus yeah. Christ, right? He's the only one who can possibly save us, right? <laughs> we talk about a white man saving the world. There's one. Um, yeah. Yet that, yeah, you can't, these kinds of people can't imagine bottom-up order. That's my complaint. That's right. That's right. Well, and a lot of people get all this kind of fascist dystopia now, and like that's exactly what you get with this with this this adaptation is you get the female doing the exact same thing, except at least John Connor was working for the whole of humanity. Here, this lady's not even a human, and she's just working for her particular interest, which is to uh, have sex with her robot boyfriend in the shower. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jesse, seriously. <laughs> Come on, that's what's it's, it's like. Um, he's he's wrong, such but... a he's such a not important character that he, he doesn't even have any books. He lives in a bus. She's got all the books, but we're told he's the librarian. And that's an important job, even though actually there's only one magazine that matters to the whole plot of the story. Did you take note of any of the books that uh, she was collecting up uh, in her flashback dream sequence? No, not really. Uh, there was a Borges in there. Um, yeah, I saw the Borges. Oh yeah, I, I, yeah. I saw um, a few of the titles. Yeah, and I was down. like, this is this is what they do in <laughs> in a show to show that we're really intellectual. Is they get a bunch of famous books and they they throw them in and say these are important and then never touch them or look at them again. Um, that that's notice that books are never ever mentioned in the original short story, right? In the novelette. They're, they're really about taking control of their own agency. It's n- it has nothing to do with preserving uh, books for a future age. Uh, other novels do that. Other stories do that. But that's not what this is about. It isn't about that. And it isn't about, um, you know, having sex on buses or any anything like that. It's much more about economics. And 
And so it isn't a criticism of Amazon, really. It's, uh, it, I mean, it could be if you say something like, Amazon is so important and so powerful that one day, Amazon, we will be Amazon. Oh, something like that. Uh, it's not... It, it, it's not a real criticism. Whereas I think mm-hmm. the original short story, it is a, it, it's not communist, uh, it's not socialist, it's just a critique of capitalism, I think. Oh, we, we talked a lot about this. We're probably done, right? I think we're done. Yeah. Good job. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.